Hello everyone, welcome to Australian Open Roundup here and we'll be reviewing the championship that just concluded this past weekend and I have a repeat guest. This is becoming quite a tradition and we are very lucky to host uh, Mark Woodford in one of our reviews and he's in Adelaide making time as always for tennis with an accent. I'm humbled. Thank you very much, Mark, for doing this. I know you are spending time with family and this is just an honor to be sharing the space with you after you have uh, finished working the fortnight in Melbourne. Thanks, Akiba. It's always a pleasure and, and uh, happy to, well, not just talk tennis, but, you know, have an have a in-depth chat about the Australian Open. Yeah, likewise. So let's not uh, waste any time here and get into the mix of things. For the first time in his career, Rafael Nadal has Roger Federer in the rear view. You know, it was, such, it was such a chase and, you know, he's now sitting at 21. A lot of us thought it will be Novak Djokovic who will get to 21 first. No, not many were ruling Nadal out that he'll ever get to 21. So this is a humongous moment for him. He comes after a procedure done, I think, one of his you know, left foot, I think it was. He comes back uh, under, uh, you know, didn't have many matches under his belt. So and here we are, you know, we just witnessed history. He takes out the second best hardcore player. Uh, in the, in the world after Novak Djokovic versus Daniel Medvedev, the current U.S. Open champion. So mm-hmm. just uh, unpack for us and the listeners, what are your initial takes as we take a deeper dive into this match with some follow-up questions? But what's the first, first thing that comes to mind three days after Nadal's you know, groundbreaking, history-breaking uh, championship run? Huh, well, I, I mean, how, how do you put it in, into words? Because I think it, it does... It does take my breath away uh, about, uh, you know, the performance. Just remarkable. Um, and, and I don't, I, I think I this at maybe at Roland Garros, <laughs> that when he won 13 and, um, you know, I mean, how do you describe it? And I think it's, it's really the same with the Australian Open result. Uh, it, it is, it is quite incredible. And I, and I don't think I have enough, um, uh, words in my vocabulary to really, you know, describe it in the manner that it should be. But it is, it, it's blowing me away. Um, you know, as, as you pointed out, so you, you know, last year, struggling with a foot injury um, that, that uh, marred his season. I mean, look, over the last two seasons, I, I think he's played 12 matches um, heading into this year's Australian Open. Um, you know, so so lack of match play was working against him. I think time, age, working against him. Um, uh, you, you know, and, in, and into the final, you know, giving ten years away. But um, I, lo- I like the aspect of uh, or the, the some of the comments that were made that um, with Nadal, once the longer he could stay in the draw, uh, uh, look, there was certainly uncertainty. Um, you know, arriving at the Australian Open, but the longer he stayed in the draw the better his chances were. And I think I, you know, even when I looked at the draw, you know, had had him, you know, moving through to the second week, but I just did not believe, did not trust my instincts that he is such a grand champion. You should never, <laughs> never wager, but wager, um, it's not that I'm waging, wagering money, but just... I just did not see him, you know, in the final, let alone win the title. I, I, I thought that maybe if Zverev, you know, could have stayed alive, I, I just feel like, you know, some of the, the guys that are this next gen that are coming up, it's specifically Medvedev and Zverev, 
I don't think they fear Rafa uh, as much anymore. Um, I feel like they have that confidence that they their game stands up next to his. Um, uh, but look, that matchup never happened. Uh, Rafa didn't have to play Zverev. Um, and the longer he stayed in the tournament, the better Rafa, just bit by bit, round by round, he was getting better, uh, more comfortable. And... <sighs> Gee, I mean, what the heck? The final, I still, I mean, it really was a two sets of love down. Um, that second set was was magnificent. I think that that you know played a a, a massive part. I, and I really, you know, for me, I was commentating it on radio. I felt that two sets to love that was that was really the nail in the coffin. But it highlights Rafa's belief, trust this this uh, uh, um, never, never give up. He forces opponents to beat him. And, and unfortunately, Medvedev just could not get that little extra ounce of energy to go in for the victory. Um, you know, well, I, I mean, you could say that he was one point away from victory when he led two sets to love, 3-2. He had love 40 on uh, Rafa's serve. Um I, I just he couldn't he just couldn't get it um, uh, finished, and I think uh, he was just depleted physically. Um, and, and Rafa worked his way back in the match. I didn't think even at two sets all that, that Rafa um, was, was uh, w- would get the victory. But again, it just shines highlights what a what a fantastic attitude he brings to the court every single time he steps out there. All right, so. I mean, you made some excellent points. We we take the greatness for granted. And, you know, we know like Nadal has made a living out of like always staying in the moment, always focus on the next point. It's easier said than done, but we've seen that play with his career. And nobody does that, I think, at that level. Uh, of course, Djokovic is there, Federer is there, but I think just by playing point by point, I think he is someone who's done that. Djokovic might have won more important points, Mm-hmm. Because you know he's, you, we know what a stellar player he is, and this race is uh, far from over. Novak, uh, the moment he gets back into the mix of things, he is the favorite to win every slam he enters. But uh, let's stick to this final, and uh, what you said, uh, he gave up ten years in age, and not to mention like he's coming from an injury layoff. And many of us believe the longer the match goes, it favors Medvedev. So, yep. so is that? Uh, is that something, uh, you know, Nadal's strategy that won? Is it his belief that won this match? Or is it Medvedev's short selection, not reading the drop shots, the baseline exchanges giving 20 feet when Rafa is drop shotting him a lot in third and fourth set? So how did you see this match tactically? You know, where, where, where did this match change? Because Nadal was hitting the ball harder when he came back from bathroom break in the third set. I saw yep. an ESPN statistic which said his forehand is 20 kilometers per hour faster than what he was timing in the first two sets. So he knew it's now or never. He amped right. his game, but then still, the other guy was world number two. He was no slouch. So break it down yeah. tactically. You know, what were the points that stood out? Well, well, I, I think, you, you know, for, for Rafa, as you, as you said, that, you know, two sets to love down. I mean, your back's to the wall. Um, and I yes, saw those stats that he, he started, you know, having a, a crack at his forehand, tried to f- flatten the ball out. Um, um, you know, using the drop shots. I mean, look, look, Medvedev stands so deep behind the court. It's not as if Rafa doesn't stand uh, deep behind the the baseline either, but I felt like that Rafa 
through the tournament had been experimenting, you know, moving closer to the baseline to return serve. Sometimes he drifted back. Um, but look, he, he, he seemed like he was prepared to be a little closer um, uh, to the baseline. And, and yes, throwing in those drop shots, given that Medvedev, I mean, was, was so far deep, uh, very deep behind the baseline. And I think, you know, in the back of Rafa's mind, figuring that, um, oh, and, and you mentioned that, you know, the longer the match would go, it would favour Medvedev. I, I felt it was the other way around. The longer the match, you know, if it became a physical battle, that I think Rafa just bets he trusts his physique, his, his, uh, his fitness level over probably, you know, 99% of the guys out there. And uh, given that Medvedev has had a, a you know, a difficult semi-final. Um, I, I think he'd got caught in a, a lengthy match with Cressy as well. Um, I, I just felt like that Rafa just, you know, if he was going to go down, he was prepared to lose if Medvedev could finish him off. Um, but the, I, I don't think the velocity on Medvedev's ball um, wasn't, wasn't the same either. Um, um, but I, I, I just certainly felt like that if it got to the fifth set, that the effort that it took for Rafa to actually get back into the match at two sets all, I felt like that it also provided a bit of a breather or a break for Medvedev, that he would find that second wind, more or less. Um, but he, he, just, he just could not break free. And, and, and once, once Rafa, um, you know, could see the finishing line, um, you know, he, he's, he's a tough man to, to overcome and... Um, but, you know, I, I felt like in the fifth, Rafa's goal was in a very Spanish, very clay court mentality. He just kept moving Medvedev corner to corner. Uh, if there was an open court, that's where the ball was going to go and just continue to take the legs out of Med- Medvedev. And uh, um, look, whilst it was an extremely close fifth set, um, uh, I, I just think his 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 belief um, and, and just that, that wonderful positive attitude, you know, won, won uh, the title for him in the end. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think there was a stat like going after the match, Nadal had won the longer rallies more than Medvedev. He had the edge. And uh, if someone had told me before that match, not that I'm discounting Nadal, I, I thought Nadal was playing mostly day matches. He was playing more aggressive tennis. He was trying to look for the open inside-out forehand, you know, against Shapovalov, against Berrettini. He was unsettling these guys. And, of course, Medvedev is a more complete player than those two guys. But I was surprised and, and, in the end and, that Rafa won. Sorry. And backhand down the line. I, I mean, I, yep. Rafa, the, the, the um, ability for Rafa in that match in the final to actually move into the court and, and cut off the angle to hit the backhand up the line was was tremendous. It, it kind of, uh, I felt like, mirrored each other as well, Saqib, that, um, you know, we know that Rafa, when he moves out wide to the forehand um, and and his his breathing space or his regulation forehand, sometimes it will, most times, it will go cross-court. And if he doesn't have enough velocity on it, if, if, he, if, it, if it lands short, he, he, he is exposed. And Medvedev was trying to, you know, rip the backhand up the line. He had success with that. But I, I really felt like that Rafa was that 
okay, he has to respond, that he has to, uh, or, you know, take those opportunities. I think so often we've seen Rafa just move laterally across that baseline exceptionally well. But in the final, he just, you know, cut the angle off, certainly when he was pushed out to the backhand. And, and he nailed that. I, I just haven't seen the, the backhand hit so many winners up the line. I'm, I'm used to seeing it cross court, but he did it with great success on key moments um, with a backhand up the line against Medvedev. No, he did. So if you look at it from the coach's perspective, you're calling this match for radio. So where did Daniel Medvedev cost? I mean, this is a very close match. It, it went to the wires, five sets. So there's like few points that decided the outcome. Uh, you mentioned there's a you know the love forty game, the sixth game, and the third set. But overall, if uh, looking from the coach's lens, where did what what could Medvedev have done differently to change the outcome? It's easier said uh, than done, but what were the yeah. patterns that that yeah. bothered you? Well, for for me, that um, I, I think I I would focus on you know if I'm if I'm talking to Daniel afterwards, and you know I I, I think that juncture right there, midway through this the third set. I think the game before, it might have been at 2-1, he had one break point that went by fairly quickly. Um, but at, at 3-2, when he had the love 40, I, from, from memory, um, and, I, and I don't have my notebook in front because I usually keep notes when I'm, when I'm calling matches as well, but I feel like he played those points passively. And I don't think Medvedev, to me, is not a passive player. He is a, you know, he, he goes out after the points, his ability to hit big from the baseline. And I, whilst maybe Rafa might have, at that time, been on a bit of a, a downward swing, um, I, don't, I don't think Medvedev stepped up to the plate at that juncture um, and maybe had hoped Rafa might go away. And I think that's the that's a big mistake, and that that really, when he didn't pick up the break of serve there, I think you know mentally because until that stage, I don't think Medvedev had taken a dip in his level. I mean, winning the first set set six two, um, it was just a, a absolute boxing match um, that second set, um, and I think his energy levels just started to you, you know take a bit of a. Um, a, a hit um, and once he didn't pick up that break of serve I think it affected him more in a negative way um, and, and the energy just deserted him what, what, once once Rafa won that third set I, I, I know I said on air that I really believe we're going to a fifth set um, you, you know so it's a does is it in Medvedev's mindset does he just let the fourth set go by to reset for the fifth, or does he try and win it in four sets? Uh, I, I, I just, I, I felt he might have been better off just kind of playing, just being there, being a passenger in the fourth, and trying to rejuvenate in the fifth. But again, uh, he just, I, I think he was depleted um, energy-wise um, that he he just couldn't muster that extra burst to get over the finishing line. But I, I think for me, the main. The, the main heart or the heart of uh, uh, where the match slipped out of his fingers was midway through that third set. Sure. So we, we, I'll get on Medvedev in a couple of questions, but uh, where do you rank this win for Nadal? Such a storied career. Uh, it's hard to pick, uh, you know, because he's had so many great moments that 
2020 Roland Garros final against Djokovic, the 2008 Wimbledon final against Federer, and so many of those Roland Garros wins. But if you look at the career and take stock, where would you put this achievement? Uh, I you, you know, I, I, I think for, for Rafa, this, this would have to rate up there with, you, you know, the, the, the time, the moment that he, um, uh, you know, even won 13, his 13th Roland Garros. Um, you know, there, there are many matches. I mean, they had that Titanic, um, you know, match at the final of the Australian Open as well with, uh, with Djokovic. Um, but this, I think the significance of this being 35 years of age and the doubt that he had the, the, the um, whether he would be able to play at this level again, given the foot injury um, and the inactivity over the last couple of seasons, I, I think this is such a standout result for, for Rafa. I don't, I don't think it's one that he'll easily forget. Uh, I don't think this will be, you know, that we'll see Rafa back on the courts to, soon <laughs> because I think it, it took so much out of him um, uh, and, and he should take time to to rejoice this victory. I, I I think it's it's probably would rate up there with you know the top top two or three matches accomplishments that um, you know he's had in a lengthy um, and historic career. All right, so this is a touchy topic, but you know we can't ignore it. I don't believe in asterisks, but a lot of people believe that no Djokovic means this win is not complete. I'm no. sure you've heard this. Rubbish. What, what's rubbish. Absolute, absolute rubbish. Uh, you know, you don't, there's no asterisks next to um, any of these tournaments just because someone's not there. Otherwise, we would be asterisking, you know, all of these times that, uh, that Federer ha- has been out injured. To, to me, it's like an injury. You know, Djokovic, that, the saga that, that occurred there, I, I mean, it is what it is. And, and uh, I think it would be highly unfair um, you, you know, for um, this idea that we have to um, asterisk the tournament because Novak wanted to play, um, but that opportunity, you know, was taken away from him. I, I think that's uh, hogwash. Okay. And I'm sure, yeah, the, there's enough has been spoken at this topic. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a hot one, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it is. We, we did we did a full episode and then we did live Twitter spaces because it was such a thing. You know, everybody was following it. It seems like yeah. now ages ago, but everybody was up. I, I don't think many people in the world have ever followed Australian politics or like a code drama or like, you know, everybody was yeah. tuned in. What's going to happen with Novak? So, yeah, we all were there. And uh, that has multiple layers to it. I don't, you know, we've spoken about it. So let's get back to this tournament then. Uh, Daniel Medvedev, you know, uh, had an episode with the crowd. He mm-hmm. he's he loves to play the foil. We've seen at the U.S. Open. He's someone who can doesn't get rattled. But a lot happened here. He made this uh, press conference where he's not giving you much, but it could be the crowd he's talking about. So being an Aussie, you've been going to this tournament, your home tournament. You've played there. Now you've been calling matches. Did you sense uh, uh, he deserved that crowd or did you sense the crowd was harsh or, or, or you can't have it both ways? He wants to misbehave and then some people picked on that. So how do you see the situation? Because I've heard different views on that. Mm. Uh, people you know, have different comments uh, for Medvedev because he does invite the crowd to behave that way or it doesn't bother him. But then in a Grand Slam final, he was hoping that some people would clap for him. And I think uh, that's how it and played out in the end. And he's playing yeah. a legend, of course. He's playing one of the most popular guys ever. And Oh, yeah, and let me throw in one more question. I compared this crowd to the 2015 US Open crowd 
which rooted for Federer against Djokovic. And right. um, some people found a disagreement, but what's your take? Uh, larger question, how does this crowd affect the match? And what's your take as an Aussie on this crowd? Um, so uh, I think there was, a, it was a, a, different, a different feeling in the crowd throughout the tournament. Um, and and as, as we've said, you know, this, this affair with Djokovic, the saga, I, I think it dampened um, at the beginning of the tournament. I noticed a very different um, general feeling uh, around the grounds with the fans. They didn't have uh, capacity crowds. They, they had limitations uh, on a daily basis. Um, but even the officials walking underneath un, um, the, the stadium, there just was a lack of, it was, it was flat, a lack of excitement. Um, uh, uh, and I think that it reflected in, in the crowd. Um, don't forget what, what Melbournians, Victorians and Australians have gone through. Um, so I think they were, uh, it's almost like ready to rumble type of uh, attitude. Um, uh, so, you know, with, with Medvedev, stepping into this villainous role um, and and I think it, it peaked probably or began with the match against Kyrgios um, and it, it was it was unruly it, it um, I, I felt it, it, it went a little too far um, and I know I think it accumulated it just built up with Medvedev obviously we saw him lose it um, you know, on a change of ends, uh, what was it the semi final? Yes, um, uh, with um, I'm willing to give the guy a break. Um, for me, Sakib is that happened on the change of ends, he's sitting down. Um, and I'm not excusing his, his, his behavior, I, I mean, some of his, his uh, choice of words are inappropriate. But this guy walks onto the court. He doesn't go over the time limit. He plays pretty fast. He doesn't throw his racket. He doesn't break rackets. He's not spitting on the court. His general behaviour on the court, I think, is is very, very professional. Um, and and yet he 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 is made to look like a, a, a villain. Um, and, and I think it, it, has to, it has to affect you. You're walking out for a major final, and as you're introduced, you're hearing boos. It, it, it's, it, it has to affect you. Um, and I know that he got, uh, you, you know, there were times, I mean, in our position under, uh, in the bunker right behind the court, so we have this fantastic view. And, you know, I know that there were times the crowd, you know, when it, in between serves, you, you, you do get a little sensitive when you feel like it's building up against you, when you feel it is one-sided. Um, uh, I don't know if it, if it, it affected the outcome um, because I liken it as well to a, a Davis Cup scenario. There's always home and away matches and he, he's probably been in those scenarios before um, as, as Look at it, and you 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 put it correctly. He's walking out to play an absolute legend. Um, you, you know we've we've seen it with uh, when Federer steps onto the court, and Djokovic hasn't had that reception, and he's one of our great champions. So it it uh, it comes with the territory. Um, but I, I 
yeah, I, I felt like the crowd, you know, this in-between serves, I, I think is absolutely unnecessary. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, it was, a diff- it was just a very different crowd um, that was watching the Australian Open this year. Um, and let's hope that it, it um, you know, is not, not something that we are going to be, you know, that's going to taint our, our event um, moving forward. I'd, I'd like to believe that it might have been a, a one-off given the circumstances that they've experienced over the last 18 months to two years. Sure. So let's, uh, when we're talking about the crowds, let's talk about uh, the Kokinakis Kyrgios team. They, they brought some crowds uh, and Kyrgios is always, you know, saying, you know, look at the stadium, look at the tickets. Uh, you were there presenting the trophy. Uh, again, you know, they played some exciting tennis uh, as uh, they, they took out a lot of seeds on this way. So yep. where do you see the Nick Kyrgios crowd? I mean, you think, is that a same Australian Open crowd or that's just like, uh, I don't well, even know. Look, the- Kyrgios loves to play. I mean, over the last number of years uh, on the um, on one of the arenas there, which is a, um, a grounds pass. That's that's the court that he loves to play on. It used to be um, High Sense, now it's called something else, right? Yes, uh, it might be called the John Kane John arena. John Kane, yes. Um, after the, the former Premier of Victoria and... Um, so you know he 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 feels like that he um, is appreciated um, uh, on that court that the fans can come in and they can be rowdy and get down and dirty and uh, they're not going to uh, judge him I, I guess um, but the success that he that he went through this year um, of course he's going to you know against Medvedev he's not going to be um, scheduled on. Uh, the John Kane Arena. He's going to be, you know, out, out, the favourite, the highest seed in the tournament was Medvedev. Um, um, that that had to be played on Rod Laver Arena. Um, it, you know, the the uh, what he was going um, trying to just, you, you know, again, I, I, I use the term whip the crowd into a frenzy, and I and I get all of that. That you know, you want the home support. Um, what what I have difficulty is with is um, you know the encouragement of that the the behaviour of of um, calling out in between first and second serves and uh, you know on a on an error you know applauding your opponent's error um, that that to me is not that's not kosher um, and yet Nick was getting so fired up when the crowd if they made a peep when he was serving in between first and second serves so it's like if he if he's getting upset about it imagine what the opponents are like when it is amplified more so um up their end or when that what they're experiencing so i i i it's it's just difficult to understand uh, at, at times i i love the fact that you know the success that he and tanasi had um and i love the fact that there was a, a spotlight on doubles um, they are a high quality pair. They are a dangerous pair, and and they deserve to win the title. And um, uh, but I, I think if they feel like that they're going to get that support when they go to Roland Garros, uh, or if they're playing it at, uh, I highly doubt they'll play at Wimbledon because of the five set um, format. That maybe if they play the U.S. Open, I don't think they're going to get that quite that same support um, from from those crowds. Um, uh, so uh, look, they took advantage of it, um, and that's fantastic. Um, but 
um, yeah. Uh, so then, you know, like you, you kind of gave me food for thought and it's a larger perspective because to us tennis people, I mean, I'm counting myself as fans and you're, you know, you're a former player, a Hall of Famer, but do we have different rules? Because I've always called the US Open crowd is more like an NBA crowd because that's the tournament I've gone the most in my life. I've gone 16, 17 years, I think. And uh, when people complain uh, on Twitter, I, I tell people who I interact with, look, it's it's a popular culture. They, they, they love their tennis, but it's also different. A lot of times people don't know who each and every player is and yeah. uh, they get behind the popular player. And, uh, and my biggest annoyance is like if I'm spending $250 and I'm at the top on the Arthur Ashe Stadium, yeah. people between points are moving. You know, the ushers don't control them. So yeah. I add that etiquette to tennis etiquette that you don't clap someone's uh, footfall or someone's double falls. You yeah. don't heckle between serves. Similarly, you don't move between points. I've only gone to Roland Garros once in my life, but I was there for five yeah. days. And I was on Chartier at the top echelon. Of course, it's not as big as uh, Arthur Ashe, but no one moves between points. And I'm an American, but, you know, people, I'm not calling Americans out, but I think it's a cross culture. You know, if you're close to the courts, the ushers will monitor you because the server will get distracted and you won't be allowed to move. But if you go in the upper echelon, you are allowed to move. And that to me is poor tennis etiquette, but I'm old school. (laughs) So are we being too sensitive? Like when people heckle, because it's an NBA crowd, it's an NHL crowd. Where do tennis crowds draw a line? I mean, do we... I don't, I, don't think I don't think it's too too sensitive. I, th- I think you're, th- there are parts that I, I definitely agree. Um, it, you know, the, the sensitivity about m- movement, um, you know, my mind, you know, drifts back to, um, you know, NBA, college basketball, you know, when they're, when they're taking, you know, shots from the foul line. I mean, people behind the, the, the ring, they're waving flags every you know towels to, to put off the person shooting from the from the uh, foul line um uh and and tennis i think it's it's probably in the bigger stadiums now i i think you, you know look players it's it isn't it funny though sakib you, you know you go to a lot of academies and not just in the us but around the world and as a, a teaching tool with kids whilst they're on the court You'll see that other kids at, at that academy or other players, coaches, they're lined up around the court yelling and screaming and trying to distract the player who's there doing, on, doing their work on the court because you, we're taught that you've got to be able to block out the noise. You've got to be able to focus up the other end. And yet here we are as a sport that are saying you just cannot move and we shouldn't be able to, you know, the, the, um, the voices are too loud. Um, you, you can't interrupt them when they're playing. The movement thing for me now, I, I you know, um, I, I think we need to give it up on that one. Um, you know, certainly in the uh, the upper sections of some of these stadiums now, I think they should be able to fans come and go in and out of the stadium okay. and get to their seat. But the, the, I think the etiquette should still remain in place. Just about the 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 heckling in between first and second serves and double faults or mistakes. I think that, that, you know, pushes the the boundary. But I respectfully disagree. I don't disagree with you much, but I would say (laughs) if I'm paying $200, you know, like I'm watching, you know, a match from the upper echelon, you know, like I don't want someone interrupting my point, you know, and people do that a lot in US Open. They just move and then you, your view is getting blocked. So, but again, you're right. I mean, we we are sometimes too sensitive in tennis matches, 
because we don't have a clear cut definition what an exact crowd is because you know there is no definition so people yeah. are saying this is not a tennis crowd this is not your typical but what is a typical tennis crowd and if we are calling 2015 US Open as rowdy this Australian Open crowd was equally rowdy yes yeah you know? so yeah. you can't isn't have it, it both ways it, right isn't it funny though we we as tennis you know you you kind of with fans that i mean look tennis crowds i think have changed over the years because they used to just come and that's what they were there to see was the tennis they'd buy a ticket there was never anything around the grounds i mean they had maybe food outlets to uh, you you know to go get a beverage and maybe some food but there wasn't any of these stalls and entertainment that that were that was set up and now there is uh, we we used to promote that people bought a ticket and and you'd expect them to sit on their hands basically and just applaud at, at the end of a point and you know now it's there is so much people go to the tennis and they're not necessarily there to watch the tennis they will be there for the entertainment certainly at the grand slams the given given that uh, um you know how corporate that it that it has become so um you know it's a, it was uh, such a, a bonus though i think at the end of this year's australian open for me walking around the grounds um to see i mean i mean people are buying or get just buying a grounds pass and actually sitting in garden square and just watching these big script the, the tennis on the big screen that that was what you, you know it's heavily promoted and they 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 almost sell out um you know grounds passes are actually you know a, a valuable commodity at the end of the Australian Open because they can freely walk around they can go over to you know uh, ha- have these uh, different food stalls um you know different beverages and they can sit down in deck chairs usually under the sun baking whilst they're watching these great matches no oh, great i mean uh definitely it's a it's a great tournament and you know uh, with the financial hardships it's had uh, the tennis spoke for itself and uh, yeah there was a cloud of uh, novak hanging over this tournament but then nadal winning it i think was a good return for the tournament's financial yeah, interest because yeah, he created the history neg- here yeah the neg- the negativity that the tournament started uh, that the cloud that it started under you know the through the first week it started to build up this the um, the focus um uh an attention on Sam Stoza um with her retiring so it, it the Australian Open i think was embraced by Australians i think they you know the success at the end i i think it's really saved the Australian Open um it, sure. without it it was a, it was an extremely heavy load um the the Djokovic saga um but Australians stood up tennis players as i said Sam Stoza in week 1 i think created a a world of interest and um uh, and it, and the continued success of uh, the special case Tanasi and Nick and of course the ongoing uh victories of of Ash Barty um so you know we had a, a pair in the mixed doubles final uh, Jason Kubler and Jamie Forless um uh who ended up losing in the final Australians won the doubles. We had a winner in the women's singles. It, Australians really saved the Australian Open and then of course the way that it ended with Nadal. I I mean I I think the Djokovic affair is is way in the background now. Yeah, I mean Nadal and Barty couldn't be more popular winners. So before we get into Barty, what's the health of the men's tour? I still think is Djokovic's race to lose when he gets back in the mix of things. 
he's that good. But Nadal, if he wins French Open, who would have thought he would have a 2-0 lead over Djokovic if they both tied at 20? <laughs> yeah, no, but, uh, it's, it's crazy, yeah? <laughs> yeah, so if you keep those two guys aside, because, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have all year to talk about them. But uh, what do you learn about Medvedev? Is he the leader of the pack? What do you learn about Shapovalov, Felix Ogialyasim, Berrettini, Zverev? Where does the health of the men's game stand? Let's talk about these four or five names. What yeah. do you expect from them and after what you saw from them in Melbourne? Berrettini has 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 uh, continued to grow. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think uh, you know. Obviously, he's a he's a, I mean, massively tall <laughs> beast um, with a big game, um, and it's an attractive game. I, I find it attractive, and I think he's grown over the. Um, if you remember making the semi-finals of uh, the U.S. Open in 2019, and uh, then I, I didn't think that he performed awfully well at Roland Garros the following year, but he has he has continued to improve um, and, and believe in himself. Um, another great result, fantastic to see the lefty, the the electricity coming from Shapovalov's, um, you know, in, in, end of the court um, and, and heartbreaking to see him go down in five. But, you know, I think these, it's a, in a very healthy state um, is how I'd say it. Zverev, look at a hiccup. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's going to harm, you know, uh, hold him back for the rest of the year. Um, but probably at the start of the tournament, to be honest, I, I felt like that this was, it was actually in a way, good for the men's tour. If Djokovic wasn't here uh, playing, that that it promoted the this next uh, generation that are coming up, and it is led by Medvedev um, and and Zverev um, and Sitsipas and, and Sitsipas. For, for me, you know, just a, a a a welcome return to form. I mean, I I think you you're aware that I've you know I've I say you, you know he is for me. Um, you, you know, a player that he might take a little longer to actually reach his peak, um, but that peak he hasn't even touched yet. Um, I, I think is the variety of his game, a little like Barty. You know, it's, it's not. It's just will, has taken her a few seasons to get to where she is now, but she, she's almost at the moment. She is by far. Um, the, the best player on the women's side. And I, I feel like Sitsipas, given the, the variety in his game as well, it might, it might still take another season. But I, I just love the way that he can adapt to opponents and to surfaces. Um, but he is in that bunch uh, as well. So I, I look at it as very... Medvedev coming up on, on clay, not his, his favoured surface. Um, but... You know, Stefanos is uh, has a passion for clay, and we've got you know this Alcaraz, um, you know, waiting, you know, behind as well. And I think he will close the gap so quickly, um, you know, and become one of those one of those players. For me, he's probably the one player outside the top ten that has the potential to reach number one. No, he's definitely them. So, uh, who, if you take stock, who has the biggest upside, Medvedev? Zverev Sitsipas, because this is a question that keeps coming in a lot of Twitter spaces, yeah. a lot of tennis channel talks. So what you've seen so far, yeah. is it Medvedev leading the pack? But who has the most potential? Look, I, I, think, I think Medvedev still, still um, you know, leads the way there. Um, you, you know, I, I'm, for me, I look at, you know, how much further, how much more, uh, how high is that ceiling? 
you know, is they, they, I don't think any of them have actually reached their full potential. Yeah. Their, their peak, um, you know, and, and again, over, over the times that we've discussed, um, you know, I, I was the one surprise for me was Auger Aliassime. I, I feel like that maybe, um, you know, there's, there's still a ways to go for him, but I, I was dead impressed. I, I think that was one of the best matches that I've seen him play um, uh, before going down. It, it was um, a real surprise because I never really put him in the pack with, I, in fact, I rated. I still, you know, at this stage, rate Shapovalov um, with a with a brighter future. But um, yeah, I, I I just see all of them. Those those guys that we've spoken about, they've still got you know room to improve. And I think that's for me what is really important for men's tennis um, as we're transitioning. Look at age wise with Rafa and uh, and Federer. Um, you know, Novak will probably be around a little longer, but um, I, I think it's in a very, very healthy position, men's tennis right now. Yeah, that's good to know. So let's talk about Ash Barty, first Australian winner since 1978. You know, we've had the likes <laughs> yeah. of Sam, Sam Souza yeah. try it, Leighton yep. Hewitt try it, Patrick Rafter try it, Mark Philippoussis. Yep. You know, we've had some big names, at least on my yep. watch list, and no one won the national title. And now she's one of the most popular champions. She doesn't drop a set. And uh, she runs a third uh, different slam. I mean, so talk about that. You know, how well is that received? How popular is she back home? Um, I, you, you know, we, we have some iconic um, tennis players who are revered in this country um, and, and none more than Yvonne Goulagong Corley, Margaret Court. Um, so for Ash to step up, um, and it, look, it's taken a couple of couple of tries. I mean, there there has been um, this this um, uh, or, or her being tipped to win the title probably the last couple of years, and it's not always easy to return home and get ready for your um, your your nation's Grand Slam with all of this pressure and the expectation. Um, she, look, the process I think helped winning Wimbledon. Um, there's a historical aspect to that with Australia as well. But um, I, I think that really prepared her, um, put her in such a great position, ready to win the Australian Open this year. Um, again, I was able to call a couple of matches of hers uh, during the tournament and just watching her move around. She uh, are, are in between points. There was not any fear. And I think that's what has um, stalled the success in the past of winning the Australian Open um, is is fear. Nerves have got the better of her. What if I don't play well? Uh, what happens if I'm you know you know I'm out early and having to handle all of the the having to answer the questions? I don't see any fear with her at the moment at all now um, when she's out there. It's more of an acceptance that if I do go down. She knows she's aware that she's forced her opponent to play at a high level. Ash is not giving matches away. She's forcing people to beat her. Um, and I think that that is, she, she's just found herself in a very comfortable zone out on the um, uh, uh, space, out on the court. Um, so it's, a, it's, Boy, oh boy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, she, she is someone, um, three slams, three different surfaces. Um, 
I know her coach was making comments that um, the US Open is going to be tough for her given the type of ball they use. But I still say that she is, she is, you know, very capable of winning the US Open. I mean, imagine that your first four slams and, and you could actually <laughs> win, win each of them. So look, we, we still have Roland Garros to come and another Wimbledon to play. She, she certainly starts the favourite. Her game adjusts to all of those surfaces. And uh, I think she's just going to grow in confidence and not in any cocky way. She is so grounded. Um, she is just very humble. Um, and, and I think everyone here is just over the moon that, um, that it was her that um, clinched the title. Is there a game like opposing a lot of mismatches because the way she plays, she's so heavy on the slice and then uh, she she has a complete offensive game as well. So is that like uh, the variety of her game that impresses you most and that's also causing a lot of uh, problems for the opponents on the tour? Basically what I'm yeah. trying to say is are there similar styles to hers out there or is she more unique in application mm-hmm. of her repertoire? Well, I wonder whether there is at the moment. Um uh, you, you know, a, a player uh, on the women's side that that is able to ad, uh, adjust. I, I, I would put um, Ash as the most complete player out there. I mean, quite frankly, I think she is, quite honestly, I should say, she's also the best doubles player out there. Because she can get on the court, she's actually happy up at net. She's, she's happy to transition from baseline to the net. She's very comfortable. Um, uh, you know, and an example would be that the matchup with, say, Madison Keys, and it's a very dangerous game uh, that that Madison Keys has. But you know, if if her A game isn't working, there's no B game. She can't. It, she, I think, she struggles to to tone it down. Where Ash, if her A game isn't working, she actually can problem solve and and you know, okay, my, if my serve's not working. I have other areas of my game I can rely upon. Um, if my forehand's not working, I can use my slice. If a slice isn't working, she can come over, hit a two-hander over the top, where I think if someone like a Madison Keys even, and a Danielle Collins, if, if they can't hit through their opponent, what else do they rely upon? How big was this fortnight for Danielle Collins? We have to talk about her. Uh, no one saw that coming. Again, she has a lot of potential. She can hit the ball yeah. real cleanly, but making uh, the final, that just came from nowhere. Well, it was. It was, you, you know, feisty <laughs> Daniel, Danielle Collins. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, a, a fantastic result, very determined, probably from what she's experienced off the court with some of those medical conditions. You, you, you know, to, to be able to overcome them and then have that opportunity to really give it everything, I think has certainly helped her. Um, unfortunately, during the final, I mean, look, this is, this is massive for her to be in the final and a, and a great achievement. Um, what, what I felt got her there, obviously, was this determination and she played with such emotion in these matches. But in the final, didn't really see her you know, fist pumping or, or giving out that war cry um, much during the first set. At the back end of the first set, when it was, okay, I'm probably going to lose this first set, but I've got to try something. All of a sudden she came out with the fist pumping and the, 
the you know squatting down after winning points and jumping in the air we we saw her and we could hear her um and that helped get to 5-1 but i i found it I found it odd that that's where it stopped at 5-1. She, she really, whether she just got tired, um, whether it, it haunted her, you know, it, it stunned her, she got nervous, I, I don't know. Um, but, you, you know, it really, all the emotion that she poured in to, to build that 5-1 lead, it stopped and Ash just was able to work her way back in. Yes, Ash made some changes, but... Um, I, I think, you, you know, probably I would hope that that Danielle looks back and, and just like, yeah, I needed to, you know, to keep going with that emotion um, so that I could secure um, the, the second set. Might have been a little more interesting if they'd got to a set of piece. It might have been much more of a, a competitive fight in that third set like we saw with the men's final. Yeah, the men's game has had a lot of rivalries, right? For the longest time, you know, Serena was peerless. You know, she was so good. And now in the women's game, we were one match away from the mouthwatering Osaka Bardi match, which didn't happen. So what is your wish list? Like if you were to see like some rivalries in the WTA to materialize, is a Shuantek Bardi rivalry uh, excites you or Osaka Bardi uh, needs to play more matches to get this, you know, they already has a billing Osaka Bardi just has to happen. So what is yeah. uh, on your wish list? Like, who do you want to see more of? Or Anisimova, you know, she's been working with Darren Cahill now. She knocked Bardi out, oh, sorry, Osaka out. So talk us through some players that who could potentially fill this future business and matches and take the sport even, elevate it even higher. Well, I'll, I'll take it from the angle that, you know, with Barty's game. And, and I, I think the, a vulnerable area is that on the backhand side, you know, there are there are times in the past, maybe she gets just caught or stuck hitting a one-handed backhand slice. Um, and it's those big, powerful games of Osaka, um, of Danielle Collins, of Madison Keys, um, of uh, Anna Samova. If they have a, if they're able to get into Ash's backhand um, continually and just pound it, um, uh, they, they have a chance, but they have to come with their A game. And how often, Saqib, do players turn up in, in a match at a tournament and have their A game? I mean, it's very rare that you actually play up to your ability. Um, it's, it's how you manage your game on the day. Um, I, I, look, yeah, yes, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to see um, Osaka, um, you know, V Barty. Um, uh, you, you know, it was fantastic to see Anna Samova, um, you know, back playing some some tennis and have a smile on on her face again. Um, uh, she she's a, certainly a talent, but I, I you know I'm I'm just wondering whether you know we'll, we'll ha- have we seen the best of Serena? Um, that would be another matchup um, to see Serena against Barty and and see how their games would would match up but you know what the most underrated shot in tennis at the moment certainly on the women's side if not the men's is that backhand slice I don't think any of the women are really enjoying um having to face Barty's backhand slice um and uh you, you know against all of those women that I that, that we just talked about I think they have an absolute headache having to deal with Barty's backhand 
How impressed were with you, Iga Sriantek's success? You know, she played a tight match against Kaya Kanepi, reached the semis. Uh, how much of a building block is this? Of course, she's a Grand Slam champion already, but she's yeah. again a massively talented, talented player. Everybody, you know, has a lot of hopes from her. So what do you make of her fortnight? You know, I, I, kind of flying under the radar, um, she had success here last year. She won the tournament in Adelaide uh, post-Australian Open. But I, I think you would like to believe that the result here this year um, has helped that belief, uh, that idea that she actually belongs up there. I think that perhaps is something that, um, you know, has has perhaps not solidified with her, that was she a one-slam wonder? Um, uh, certainly her game is, uh, um, is, is brilliant at times and uh, it's, it's probably just putting herself into those situations as often, often as possible, um, kind of like Barty. You, you know, you're not always going to win, but you've got to be prepared to win and lose. And, um, uh, you, you know, she, she certainly is going to be dangerous as she gets back onto probably her favourite surface um, of clay coming up. So you call a lot of matches for the radio. What were your favorite moments of the fortnight? What are the matches that stood out? Uh, just the sheer enjoyment of the competition and you had fun calling on air. Oh, well, you know, with, without a doubt, I, I, I did enjoy, you know, doubles doesn't always, you know, as, as you well know, doesn't always get a run on some of the, on the, the major courts. So, I, you know, I, I really did enjoy um, uh, calling Kyrgios and Kokonakis, uh, um, I, I didn't call the final. Um, I, I called their semi-final, um, and, and uh, um, you know, I really enjoyed, you know, what, watching their progress, um, as well as the pair up the other end, Ebden and, and Purcell, who bring a bit more of a traditional um, doubles flavour. So I, I got a kick out of that. Um, most of the time I was calling the men's matches. I did have an opportunity to call two of Barty's matches. And so just to see the way that she um, has evolved was, was just, uh, you know, absolutely fulfilling for me. But um, I, think, I think probably seeing Tsitsipas, you know, again, work his way through the tournament under a cloud, a cloud of um, injury coming from elbow surgery. I mean, I felt like last year, he his second serve was uh, was dodgy. Um, his backhand, I, I felt like he spent too much time focusing on trying to be offensive and coming over the top of the ball, and almost forgetting how to ha- how to handle or how to employ a backhand slice. And and for me, Sakib as well, to play a backhand slice, it that actually provides the opportunity to go forward. To net, and I feel like City Pass at the back end of last year really stayed away from the net too often. That he was trying to match it with the big guys on the baseline. So I really was thrilled to see this guy come back in, um, use the backhand slice, the second serve, the ball toss. He wasn't chasing it. We saw very few where he had to stop and catch it and, and reset. So it, it looks like he, he had 
spent some time at it um, on on trying to solidify that ball toss so that it repeats. Um, I, I saw him go back into net again behind a backhand slice. Um, and I just, you know, for me, the way, not just the way that I played, um, I, I think it, it, it just breaks away from this staying on the baseline, trying to be uh, uber offensive um, and, and everyone, you know, there's a, a, a lot of players playing that same way. So I think, you know, to see, um, you know, Pass, you know, get back into using his game, using the tools that he has um, in his tool belt, um, you know, was, was a big plus for me. I still think he could go venture to the net more. I, yep. I still think he has that ability, but yep. uh, but again, you know, I don't I don't know how it works at that level. Uh, again, passing shots are you know for the last twenty years have been fe- feasting on the players who at- attack the net. It's not easy to play at the net, but Sitsipas definitely seems like a guy who could you have, know make a living at there. And 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 have a look at that. And and I'm getting a tad excited. There's a couple of players that are actually becoming turning into very offensive players not offensive from the baseline trying to hit big but they're actually venturing forward one of them is Maxim Cressy who is seems like he's going with this serve and volley routine which I think a lot of people today are thought, like what what what, what? this crazy but it's not unusual it's just that we haven't seen it for uh, a couple of decades and the other one is is um, uh, Rindenech from from France, playing a very offensive game, not shy about coming forward. And I wouldn't say that they're necessarily the best volleyers, but it's because they have presence and they've got reach when they get to net. Um, I, I, I'm really enjoying that aspect of it. So you know, combined with Sitsipas, you know, venturing forward, I feel like that uh, Shapovalov is exploring the net uh, as well um i for me that i'm i'm over the moon with that yeah and i think it has to come into play because since most guys are not successful or they don't try the net more if more people are trying to add this to the game it can throw off the baseliner with their rhythm at some point it has of course you have to come on good shots good approach shots or you know uh, make it way behind a nice kick serve but uh, yeah volley is still a bit underused it is. It is. It is. So, yeah, so let's, uh, let's wrap this uh, show up with any parting thoughts, Mark, you have on this Australian Open. You know, we have Nadal winning. We have Ash Barty winning. We have Nick Kyrgios and Kokinakis bringing some added Australian glory to the tournament. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, f- floor is yours. Fire away. You know, how, how, how you want to do a concluding assessment of this uh, Australian Open. I think the Australian Open for me, uh, Saqib, stood tall. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, it, it really began under a, a dark cloud. Um, but the Australian Open, I think, you know, the team bounced back strongly. Um, the tennis spoke volumes. Australian tennis stood up to, um, uh, to questions. I mean, we all... Uh, each of the four slams that love some hometown content and Australia stood up in a big way. Um, uh, and to have this um, 
final match between Rafa and Medvedev. Um, it, it's taken the world by by storm that Rafa has achieved um, 21 Grand Slams. And, you know, I think for, for Australians, we're proud that not just with Barty's success and, and uh, um, uh, with Kokonakis and Kyrgios, but the fact that this history-making event of Rafa reaching 21 Grand Slams took place on our soil um, uh, was is fantastic. Rafa deserves to be called the greatest of all time now, in my opinion. Um, I know that there's a uh, the history book, the storybook, there's still plenty to be written, but I think he's very deserving to be called the greatest of all time um, right now. Um, not sure that that Federer would would uh, uh, will, will be able to, you know, hold a, a Slam trophy, but you can't, as I mentioned as well, you can never discount great champions. And uh, you know, I feel like Djokovic is probably even more hungrier now to get back out there and, and play. Um, so I, I think the Australian Open just hit it out of the ballpark, um, and I. I, you know, it's now, you know, a lot to see how Roland Garros, Wimbledon and US Open respond to see if they can, um, uh, you know, stand out just like the Australian Open has. Yeah, very well said. This tournament set the tone for the tournaments to follow this year. And we're all very excited, looking forward to what unfolds, you know a return of Djokovic, Serena and potentially Federer and Nadal in the driver's seat. This should be fun. Uh, thank you, Mark. It was always a pleasure. Uh, we covered a lot of ground in almost an hour's time and uh, hope to have you back soon. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. I'm, and I'm uh, uh, thrilled um, that uh, we have a Grand Slam winner in Australia after 44 years. <laughs> <laughs>